Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave and I'm the host for this show. And on today's show, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 66, and the title of our study today is Telling What God Has Done. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, as we come now to this great text before us, we are, we are reminded, Lord, that we always live in your presence, that we are always before your face, and that you see all and there is nothing hidden from the sight of God who sees and knows and who, because of Christ, cares. And so, Lord, as we look at this text and as you remind us and teach us and instruct us about worship and evangelism and sharing who you are with other people and what you have done in our lives, Lord, may you remind us, may we be reminded of your great glory, the glory of God that is eternally self-sufficient in and of itself, that you do not need us, but that, and yet that you made us in your image and likeness, and, and that we have, because of that, we have dignity and we have value and we have worth in your sight. And that you sent your son under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for us in our place and for our sin and to be buried and to rise and to ascend where you are even now our high priest, our mediator, and our soon returning king. So Lord, as we look at this text, may you take it and plant it deep into the good soil bed of our hearts that we might be fed from the rich soil and the living water of your word and that your spirit might take it and bring hope and and conviction and comfort and encouragement and help us to grow up in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 66, Psalm 66. Hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Shout for joy to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, and give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praise to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. He has turned the sea into dry land. They pass through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples, that the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You have brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through water, and yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. 
that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But surely God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. You know, today it's popular to hear Christians speak of spirituality. And by this term, people refer to the life of the soul before God. Many a Christian testifies to the lack of spirituality, lamenting a mechanical approach to their faith that fails to impact their hearts. Well, one remedy for this problem is to delve into the book of Psalms, which is given by God as a guide for the heart and the life and the worship of the people of God. By means of the sacred poems he inspired, the Holy Spirit takes the Christian by the hand and leads him or her through every emotion and every experience of the life of faith and communion with God. After a number of psalms of deliverance from his enemies, Psalm 65 saw David worshiping God for the bounty of his harvest. And now Psalm 66 turns from praise to the theme of witness, offering a song of worship that includes believers' testimony a testimony about God to others. And here we see that the heart that is filled with praise always desires company, which is why the psalmist summons us in verse 5 of this psalm, saying, Come and see what God has done. And then calls to everyone, Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, in verse 8. Like the psalmist, Christians, by their witness, ought to draw others to worship our God because of his awesome saving deeds. Now, the Old Testament often presents the ancient Jewish people as looking down on outsiders and abhorring the thought of the accursed Gentiles coming to know and to even worship the living God. And yet a different spirit breathes throughout the entire Psalms, which call, often call all people to come and to give praise to the Lord. And this Psalm that we're considering today is a notable example of this, beginning with its universal call to worship in verses 1 through 2, which says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. That's because Israel's Lord is God over all the earth, and so it is fitting that everyone worship the Lord. In fact, we cannot help but worship. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity on our hearts. The matter, of, the matter is not whether we are going to worship. The matter is who we are going to worship. The problem Psalm 66 addresses is that men and women in their sinful state do not desire to worship God. And it is this very essence of sin to deny God the glory that he alone deserves. In Romans 1, 21-25, Paul notes that although everyone is aware of God by means of his clear revelation in the created order, nevertheless, Paul says there in Romans 1, 21-25, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, preferring instead to make false gods to serve their own purposes. And since mankind rejects the lesser, though 
potent witness to God in nature, God has commissioned his people to summon worshipers through the proclamation of his word. Romans 10, 17 says this, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of Christ there is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The opening stanza of Psalm 66 makes some important points about the worship that all people should render to God. First, the psalmist is going to tell us that worship should be prompted by God's terrifying power. In Psalm 66.3, the psalmist says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. We tend to use the word awesome today in a positive sense. Something is awesome if it's exciting, if it's good. And the psalmist here, though, means terrifying, which is why the King James translates verse 3 to say, How terrible art thou in thy works. This emphasis on God as terrifying cuts across many grains of Christian tradition today who hesitate to present God to others as an object of fear and dread. That's why when natural disasters strike, such as earthquakes, hurricanes, or tornadoes, and they wreak havoc and death, some Christians think it important to downplay God's involvement. The, the scripture, though, in general, and the Psalms specifically, takes the exact opposite approach to this kind of view. Not only admitting God's involvement, but advancing his total sovereignty over terrible and even dangerous forces as a reason to fear and to worship God. Psalm 29, as one example, describes gale-force winds ripping through Palestine, churning the sea and shattering the cedars of Lebanon. David responds by urging praise to God in light of this in Psalm 29, verse 3, which says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. If that's not enough, Psalm 46, 8 celebrates how God has brought desolations on the earth. Jesus responds similarly when asked to explain the disasters of a tower that had fallen and killed a great number of people. And he answered that we should learn to fear God, warning in Luke 13, 5, that unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. William Plummer comments, Take from the Bible its awful doctrines and from providence and terrible acts, and the whole system under which God has placed us would be emasculated, so that the essential element of the fear of our awesome God is removed. Another example of this is Mochi, a pre-Incan people near the modern-day city of Trello. The mosaic walls inside the Moshi Temple of the Moon depict an angry, terrible God. And Christians may be tempted to comment that the Moshi presented a primitive religious sense of dread. In fact, the Moshi accurately concluded from the terrifying powers of nature, darkness, and death that God must be dreadful in wrath and fearful to contemplate without a true atonement for our sins. The truth is, they had an incomplete and warped understanding of God, but not a wholly false one. This makes the very point of the psalmist in Psalm 66.3. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. And in this, the psalmist is right, saying in verse 4 of this psalm in Psalm 66, All the earth worships you. So that whenever lightning strikes and unbelievers cringe with fear, they respond rightly as God's terrible, wrathful power is partially revealed. And what's so tragic about this is, even in, even also to use another example, in the PCUSA, they wanted to remove the wrath of God from the song in Christ alone that, that exalts in the greatness 
of God in the even in the midst of our sin. You see, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to deal definitively with our sin. This is why Paul spends the first three chapters of Romans dissecting how our sin morally and ethically and spiritually, it separates from God. And that's why Christ had to come under the sentence of death. This is what Jesus has done in the incarnation. He has come under the sentence of death to pay the penalty for our sin in our place. That, that, and not give us what we deserve, which is eternal death, eternal separation from God forever, unending, unrelenting, conscious punishment. But instead, because of Christ, we have been given the free gift of salvation that, that is costly. It costs the Son of God and the Son of Man his life to, to pay for our sin in our place and for our sins so that we would not inherit the wrath of God, but that we might be forgiven through Christ. And this is what is so tragic today in, in theological liberalism, especially where the wrath of God is treated like it doesn't even matter. If you don't have the wrath of God, you deny the very reason why Jesus had to come under the sentence of death. There, there, apart from that, there is no reason for Jesus to come. Jesus came to deal with our sin. We could not deal with our sin. And this is precisely what is so tragic about modern psychology and modern approaches to therapy and other things of the like because it, it suggests that if, if, if I can discover my problem, the, the symptom, I can deal with it. And, and that's the problem with self-help is you cannot get enough help. You cannot take enough medication to deal with the problems that you have. And I'm not saying that medication can help those problems, but you can never ultimately take enough medication. You can't go to enough psychiatrists to get the help that you need because the real problem, it, you can't dive down into it enough because it goes down into the very cellular level. It goes down into the, the DNA level. And the problem is, is that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And what we need is the rescue that a sufficient Christ alone can provide. And he does because this is why he came and bled and died and rose in our place and for our sin. And that is what is so tragic about the denial by too many supposed professing Christians of the wrath of God. It presents a neutered gospel, another gospel, which Paul says in Galatians 1, that that's, a, that's no gospel. If you have no wrath, you have no gospel. If you only emphasize love and pit the love of God against the wrath of God, you have no gospel. Because Christ came under the sentence of death to pay, our penalty, pay the penalty for our sin so that we might be forgiven, so that at the right time God might die for his enemies, as Romans 5 tells us. And so that the love of God might be poured out, even he says there, for us. And we need, we need not only the wrath of God, we need the love of God. It, it was ultimately for love that Christ came. But if we separate love from wrath, we do a disservice to people. 
Because yes, it was for to deal with the wrath of God that burns against sinners by nature and by choice. This is what Christ has come to deal with. And not only to deal with it, we call this propitiation, by the way, the wrath of God that burns against sinners. But he's also removed it or expiate. We use the term expiate. He's removed it, as the psalmist says, from the east is to the west. So that we are in the sight of God, no longer children of God. And the record of our sin has been removed from the eyes of God. He no longer remembers the record of our sin, not because of us because we deserve it, because of the righteousness of Christ alone. Now, John Calvin asserts that by noting enemies cringing before God, the psalmist implies a strong contrast with the voluntary homage with God's people yield, as attracted by the sweet influences of grace. Those who know God's mercy and salvation, they desire for him to be praised not only in fear, but also in joy for the glory of his majesty. In verse 2 of Psalm 66, the psalmist exhorts, Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. And this points out that the goal of our worship is that God's name be glorified. In fact, the psalmist urges that for this reason, God's people should offer worship that is itself glorious in form and content. After all, the psalmist says, Give to him glorious praise. In fact, we can say that this exhortation rebukes so much casual worship of God today, especially that which mimics worldly preferences rather than displaying the beauty, the truth, the holiness, and the grace of God. Eric Lane writes, The manner in which he is praised should correspond to the manner for which he is being praised, since he has revealed the glory of his name, so his praise should be glorious. And this leads us to the third point in which the psalmist urges musical worship as ideal for glorifying God's name. In verses 2 and 4, the psalmist says, Sing the glory of his name. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. That's because the word for sing, it includes all manner of musical worship, including the skillful playing of instruments. In fact, given this frequent emphasis in the psalms, uh, churches are warranted in laboring to provide musical excellence for worship that displays the glory of God's name. And yet how different is the music of the church from that of the world? Most secular music is individualistic in character. It serves to glorify the performer and it stimulates feelings rather than the listener's mind. But the music of divine worship unites the congregation in praise to God. It offers a celebration of savoring God-exalting truth. And one truth that the psalmist desires to celebrate is that the saving work of God in history to gather a great worldwide church to praise his name. Psalm 66.4 is best rendered in the future tense so that the psalmist is making a prophecy regarding the worship that God will gain for himself. In the New King James translation, in verse 4, he says, All the earth shall worship you. The psalmist glorifies God for the worldwide ingathering of believers to the gospel of Christ. Those who have turned to God from idols to serve the one and true and living God, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. The choir most fitting to give God the praise he deserves is a vast one. As Revelation 4 and 5 says, that they will be gathered from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, and every people. 
And just as the psalmist joyfully sang of all the earth worshiping the Lord, so also the success of the gospel and the glory of Christ's kingdom should be among the chief themes that thrill our hearts as worshipers today. And now having begun with this general call to worship, the psalmist invites others to join in the exalting of God's glory. In Psalm 66, 5, he says, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. The same kind of invitation was offered by Jesus when he gathered his first disciples in John 1.39, which says, Come and you will see. The angels at the empty tomb used similar words to invite the woman to look inside, saying, Come see in Matthew 28.6. That is because the Christian witness to come and see shows that salvation is the furthest thing from a blind leap of faith into the unknown. Biblical faith rests on what God has done in history so that our first witness is to call men and women to consider what God has done in saving his people. The psalmist points his hearers to the events of the Exodus, the great redeeming act of God in the Old Testament. In Psalm 66, 6-7, he says, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed to the river on foot. There do we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. By speaking of God's turning the sea into dry land, the psalmist points to Israel's Red Sea crossing. When God made a dry passage through the waves for his people and then cast the waters down to drown the pursuing forces of Pharaoh, they passed through the river on foot. This refers to Israel's subsequent passage across the Jordan River under Joshua's leadership when the waters were similarly parted. These two mighty water partings bookend the exodus of Israel from Egypt, marking the beginning and the end of Israel's redemption. The psalmist's point is not merely that God once did so great a redeeming work, but that the exodus is characteristic of God's saving work to save his people at all times. The exodus was a typical instance that shows how God normally saves. And by reflecting on this testimony, God's people should rejoice in the Savior and the nation should humble themselves before so mighty uh, and vengeful a God. The psalmist offers also a second instance of what God has done for Israel in Psalm 66, 8 through 12, citing a different kind of divine ministry in Psalm uh, 66, 8 through 9, which says, Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. Now, having first pointed to the Exodus as an example of God's redeeming power, the psalmist now points to God's preserving power as a Lord who tests and tries his people in Psalm 66.10, which says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Some commentators ascribe Psalm 66 to David's pen, since it's gathered together with so many of his other psalms, often ascribing its occasion to Absalom's rebellion. Other commentators argue that David's experience does not fit the subsequent verse as well, the idea being that the better match the latter experience of David's descendant Hezekiah as he faced the terrible Assyrian siege under Sennacherib. In either case, the psalmist admits that it really was God who brought about the calamities he faced, as God was seeking to mold the character of his people and drive out their idolatry and sin. In Psalm 66, 11 through 12, the psalmist says, 
You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, and yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Now, according to the psalmist, Israel experienced a variety of tests that were designed by God to refine their faith in the way that silver is purified by fire. They were placed in bondage as an act or with a heavy weight laid on their backs. They were subjugated by cruel masters and made to endure circumstances that threatened them with death. And yet through all of these ordeals, God was to be praised for protecting the soul of his people and preserving their, them from failure. In Psalm 66, 9, it says, God has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. You see, God's sovereign control guaranteed that his trusting people would end up better off with their trials. In verse 12, he says, Yet you have brought us into a, out to a place of abundance. And William Plummer draws out the principle to which the psalmist was bearing testimony, saying, However long and sharp the trials of God's people may be, they shall have a happy issue out of them, and a blessed enlargement which none but God can give. In fact, in telling what God has done for Israel, the psalmist witness in Psalm 66, 5 through 12, it joins God's power to redeem with God's care to guide his people into new life. And we don't know the precise events to which he's referring to here, but the Christian knows these two sides of salvation are fulfilled in the atoning death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it's not incidental that Jesus' death referred to in the Gospels as Exodus, as in Luke 9.31, since just as God redeemed Israel from the bondage to Pharaoh in the Exodus, so God has redeemed believers at the cross from their guilt of their sins. Jesus' resurrection also compares with Israel's ordeal in passing through death into new and abundant life in Christ alone. And like the psalmist then, believers are to testify concerning what God has done to deliver us from bondage and guide us through deathly trials into everlasting life. Just as the psalmist was personally invested in the Exodus, so too are Christians personally joined to the work of Christ. The psalmist reminds us that God turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot, and there did we rejoice in him in Psalm 66, 6. In saying that he and his fellow Israelites rejoiced with Moses and Joshua there at the Red Sea and the Jordan River, events that took place centuries earlier, the psalmist is making an important point for us. The point is, is that the saving works of God so impact everyone who looks to him for salvation that the Bible's history is as real to us as if we were actually present in the past when it happened. In fact, because of our solidarity with all of God's covenant people, their story is really our own story. This participation in past events is especially real when it comes to the death of Jesus for our sins. In fact, that old spiritual hymn asks, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the believer answers, Yes, I was there, for Jesus died for my sins. And when that hymn asks, Were you there when he rose from the dead? The Christian answers again, I was there, joined by God's grace to the life in him that endures forever. That's because in our witness, we invite others to come and see the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus so that through faith, they may be saved there too, through faith in the crucified and resurrected Savior, the Lord Jesus. <coughs> and in the final verses of Psalm 66, the psalmist bears a personal witness based on God's grace in his own life. 
having testified to God's redeeming works in history, the psalmist next tells us what God has done for him personally, just as we should declare to people what he has done for my soul, as Psalm 66, 16 tells us. This concluding section of personal testimony begins with a vow of sacrifice and worship in verses 13 through 14, which say, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I, made, when I was in trouble. That is, because when he was still being afflicted and tried, the psalmist promised offering to God, and now he vows again to perform them. And in recording this resolution, he presents his personal worship as a testimony to his faith in the Lord. The psalmist vows in verse 15, I will offer you burnt offerings of fattened animals, and with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats. That's because burnt offerings were the most costly to give. And since the offering was completely consumed, whereas in other offerings, portions were preserved for the worshiper to eat. By its very nature, a burnt offering was more serious, signifying something like the complete dedication or consecration of himself to God by the worshiper. Moreover, the psalmist's burnt offerings were specified by God as sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin, pointing forward to the atoning death of Christ. Like the psalmist, our worship should bear testimony to our need of Christ. Uh, mediation through the blood of his cross by which we claim forgiveness of sin and seek favor with God. And through this worship, the psalmist bears testimony to the holiness, to the grace, and the sovereign majesty of the God we worship. We should also realize that our manner of worship tells the world what we think about God. Worship that caters to personal preferences and then offers a light, entertaining sermon reveals an inconsequential God who must badly desire to win the approval of the sovereign human consumer. But holy, sacred worship that is governed by God's word, declaring scriptural truths about God's glory, man's sin, and the need of Christ's saving blood for forgiveness, bears testimony to a Lord and Savior to whom we must surrender in receptive faith. And... This is such an important point because today we are seeing a whole generation of Christians being educated in this idea of consumer worship. It's all about the latest light show and the latest entertainment as if we come into the very presence of one when we're worshiping who cares about our our enjoyment, our entertainment. We are in the presence of God when we enter into worship. And this is only because of what Christ has done. And so when, when we do, that's not to say or suggest that we shouldn't care about excellence in musical performance or anything of the like, but so much of modern worship is it's driven by this overly expectation of emotionalism that has absolutely nothing to do with biblical worship. Our worship, the point is, is to be rooted in God. To be rooted in God's word. That is why we are to worship God. God has revealed himself in the word. And his word is enough, not only for our lives individually, but for all of our lives. You see, our understanding of scripture is to impact our, our understanding of worship. And if our understanding of worship is first and foremost fueled by our emotions, we're always going to worship the wrong God. God has revealed his character and his person and his work in scripture. And so our worship must be grounded and rooted in scripture. 
And, and to be really practical, that means that our songs must be rooted, whatever they are, whether they're psalms that come directly from the psalms or they're songs that are written today, they must be rooted and grounded in Scripture. And that's the problem today. Because you have even most of the contemporary Christian culture of modern-day worship that is driven by a select, about four people, four different churches, and these churches are all bad. They're all driven by emotionalism and what I want to do. And, and we give them unfettered access to our, to our churches and to people to tell them. Because when we're singing, we're, we're, we're the, the very act of singing and the very act of worship is theological as we're seeing today. And so it matters that we're singing songs that are rooted and grounded in the word of God. And, and that those songs are not sung by false teachers who do not believe in the God of the Bible. That's the point. Instead, they are driven by emotionalism, by a consumerist mindset, and about ultimately lining pocketbooks. And yet, what biblical worship is grounded in is it's grounded and fueled by God's word that tells us about God's glory, about man's sin, our sin, and the need of Christ. Uh, our need of Christ to save us <coughs> through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is why our worship matters to God and how we worship matters to God. And we see this all over the Bible. And so we need to not be driven by emotionalism in our worship. We need to be driven by a right understanding of the word of God that fuels our worship and thus all of our life because all of our life is a matter of worship as we live before the face of God. And in addition to the witness of his worship, the psalmist also testifies to what God has done for him, especially in answering his prayer. In verses 16 through 17, he says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. You see, Christians have always delighted to tell others about how our lives have been blessedly changed through our personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. That's because our first and our primary witness is to the Bible's testimony of God's saving work and the person and work of Christ. But we add to this a word about what God has done uh, for us. John Bunyan, that great writer of the Pilgrim's Progress, took Psalm 66, 16 as the motto for his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, when he said, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. And then Bunyan relates how he struggled under the fear of God's wrath, not knowing a way to be forgiven. He recounts a struggle with God in prayer and his desperate search for spiritual peace. He records temptations that mastered him and torments from the devil that afflicted his mind. In Bunyan's struggles, many Christians see a picture of the trials that they are also going through. Bunyan's most profound struggle was over his belief that he could be saved only by presenting a clean heart to God, while realizing that his heart was instead filled with sin. Where could such a man find righteousness before God? The idea tormented Bunyan until he meditated on the gospel verses such as 1 John 1, 7, which says that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. At 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. Through these and similar verses, Bunyan saw gospel hope, and he recounts, Bunyan does, in grace abounding to sinners. 
Suddenly the sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven, and I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness, he says. And no longer did Bunyan fear that God would demand a righteousness that he did not possess, since through faith he possessed Jesus Christ, who died for his sins, and offered his own righteousness in the believer's place before God. Here, then, was John Bunyan's testimony of what the gospel did for his soul and the grace abounding to sinners. He says, Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loose from my affliction in irons. My temptations have fled away. So that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God's judgment left off to trouble me now. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. See, by means of per first-person accounts of his struggle for forgiveness and the peace of assurance, Bunyan's testimony has helped countless others experience the abounding grace that God has for sinners. Our witness will be similarly effective as we seek the blessing of Christ's grace and share them in simple, passionate language that people can understand. And given his own testimony, the psalmist wants us to know how he learned to cry out to God in prayer in verses 17 through 19. Do you doubt that God will hear your prayers? The psalmist testifies in verse 17 of this psalm. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. Do you think that you can pray to God while seeking to continue in your path of sin? The psalmist learned in verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But when he surrendered in faith and repentance and cried out to God's salvation, he was able to bear testimony that truly God had listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer in verse 19. Just as every believer should be able to explain the Bible's teaching concerning Jesus Christ, every Christian also has a testimony of, of God's steadfast love and answered prayer that God will use in a compelling way to bring others to faith in Him. The psalmist's final words identify the lesson that every believer is called to learn and to share with others in verse 20. Blessed be God because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love for me. At the heart of this psalm is the psalmist's plea in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard. And here we see the motive of all true evangelism, the passionate desire that God should be blessed and praised in the lives of people we know. In the expression, our God, we also see the goal of our witness, that others may come to know for themselves God's gift of salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ. And if they will come and see the awesome deeds that God has done to judge sin and to save people, and if they will hear as we humbly tell them what God has done for our own souls, then by the Lord's saving power, many will join us in worship. Through faith in God's word, they will participate in the great works of salvation that God has done for all those who can say, Our God. And then walking in faith with Jesus Christ, they will gain a testimony to share with others that the righteousness, the peace, and the joy that God has given our souls through Christ alone. So it matters. It matters what we think about God. That will tell us what we're worshiping. In fact, the very first thought that comes in your mind about God, that's the most telling thought. Because, you know what, we cannot help but worship. Jesus says this in Luke 6.45 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We cannot help but tell other people about the things that we love. That's why we must be so careful about what we're sharing, whether that's the matter of 
we're, we're sharing from the Bible, we're, we're talking about sports or our hobbies or whatever, because what we're talking about the most, the most, not that talking about sports or our hobbies are, are unimportant, but what we're talking about most, it's a reflection of what we love. And what this psalm is telling us, what the psalm is instructing us about is that very idea, that what we're worshiping is shown really by the things that we love, by the things that we treasure, by the things that we value. You see, worship is inherently a theological proposition. We will, wor- we will worship the things that we love, whether that's sports or hobbies or something else, we will worship that thing. And whatever we're finding meaning and identity and value in, that's ultimately what we're worshiping. And we can say one thing uh, rightly. We can say, you know what? This is what I'm worshiping. This is who I'm worshiping. But you know what? Functionally is a whole other matter. Functionally, we could be worshiping ourselves. We could be worshiping uh, the very uh, nature of our jobs or our hobbies or other things. I could say, oh, you know what? I love my wife. But if she's not experiencing that love, then guess what? I'm not really loving my wife. It's just a proposition. It's just words unaccompanied by action. See, our worship is not to only be done in our words. It's to be done in our actions. It's supposed to be played out in the confines of our lives. And that's not just in one segment of our lives where we compartmentalize our worship and say, you know what, over here on Sunday, I'm worshiping the Lord. But that mistakes the very notion of worship. Because all of our life is worship. We are always before the face of God. God sees all. He knows all. And he knows our hearts. I can't tell you what the condition of your heart is today before God. But there's a good chance that God is by his spirit highlighting those things in your life. And even in mine right now. Which he undoubtedly is. Those things where I'm finding meaning and identity and value in rather than in God. I'm saying, I believe the right things about worship. And yet, in practice, in function, in the, in the daily things of my life, I'm doing contrary to those things. And the truth is, this is why 1 John 5, 21 tells us, John says this, little children, keep yourself from idols. Because the temptation is to revert back. Instead of being us, us walking in the Spirit, We are too easily drawn back to the flesh. And this is why we are to put our sin to death. We're not to coddle it. We're not to embrace it. We're not to, you know, say, oh, this this little part is okay. We're to put it to death. Uh, Because Romans 6.11 says to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. That is, because you have a new nature, you are in Christ. He is in you and you in him. And that is always (coughs) through union with Christ. You have new, you have hope, you have meaning, you have identity, you have value, not because of yourself, but because of Christ. And this is why Paul spends those three chapters in Romans 6 through 8 talking about how we're dead to sin and alive to Christ in, in uh, Romans 6. And then the really real struggle of the Christian against us, as 1 John 2 talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Why we're supposed to put our sin to death. We still have remaining sin. We haven't arrived. We live between the times. One day we'll be totally glorified. 
And in Romans 8, he talks about even more about putting sin to death and the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. And then at the very end, Paul talks about our security in Christ. You see, how we're living is how we live our lives is a reflection of what we believe about God. Do you believe that you are living before the face of God? Do you know that you you are always living before his face and that your God sees you, that your God knows you, and that your worship is not just on Sunday. Your worship is, uh, we gather together, yes, on the Lord's Day to worship him, to hear the word preached, but then we scatter, we scatter to our various vocations and the place where God has placed us to be his, to be salt and light to share Christ with other people, to make disciples of Christ, and even our making disciples, even our act of evangelism, even our work, is a matter of our worship. It's a matter of our witness. And God cares about those things just as much as He cares about what happens on Sunday. He cares about the songs that we sing. He cares about the content that we're listening to. It matters. All of our lives, I'm saying, are inherently theological. Theology comes from God's Word. And so everything in our life, from what we're doing with our job to everything that we're doing with church and all of it, it must be tested by the Word of God. That's what is so amazing about the Bereans in Acts 17. Here they were being taught by none other than the Apostle Paul. And Paul is... Paul is amazed. Paul is encouraged, no doubt. Here's the Bereans. They're being taught by the Apostle Paul. And they're searching the scriptures to see if the things that Paul is saying are true and right according to the word of God. And Paul commended the Bereans in Acts 17, 11 for doing so. See, discernment is not just, has to do just with the teaching that we receive. Discerning the things it has to do with knowing what is right and what is good and that comes from God and that which is not from God. Discernment, in other words, has has has, has always everything to do with every part of our life and not just one aspect of life like doctrine and theology and the things that we hear and things. We should always be a discerning. We should always be on alert. Proverbs 4.23 says, To guard your heart with all due diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. The teaching that we receive, the, the instruction that we get, the doctrine that we receive, these things need to come from God's Word. That's because the Bible gives us a worldview. It helps us to, to know God. It helps us to know who He is and what He's like, yes, but it also helps us to see life through the lens that he has given. So there's no other way for us to engage the world around us in worship and to tell other people about worshiping, why they must worship God. We first need to be a people grounded in the revelation that God has given in his word so that we ourselves are growing in understanding of that worldview that God has given in the word. So that our lives, we're seeing life through his lens, through the lens of his word. And that we're always before his face 
And what this does is, the more that we meditate on the glories of Christ in the revealed word, the more that we'll tell other people about his glories. And that's what this psalmist is concerned about. That we know, yes, the right things about the Lord as revealed in the word, but then that that should fuel, because of our worship of God, because of our growth in the grace of God, that should fuel, yes, our witness, our worship, our telling other people. In fact, you can't help but tell other people about the very thing that you love the most. And that thing that you love the most as a Christian, it should always be Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the message we've been given before watching world. Jesus came. Luke's gospel tells us in Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. In John 10, it tells us that Jesus leaves in 99 and he goes after the one lost sheep. Now, whether you're telling people face-to-face in street evangelism or you're on a radio broadcast, you're on a podcast, you write an article, however you do that in your own home, it matters. It matters that you tell people about the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ in everything, in your evangelism, in your discipleship, in your worship, in everything. Grow in the grace of God and grow in love in telling other people about the saving deeds of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And it would be remiss to end a sermon like this by saying, if you've never put your personal hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus. Acts 16.31 says, to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, in Acts 4, we see 12, it tells us that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus. In John 14.6, Jesus himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's, there's, that means that there's no other name, there's no other way, that there's no other door, there's no other shepherd, there's no other religious figure, there's no other worldly philosophy, there's no other way, there's no other truth. But the absolute truth of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection, that means that all the other religious figures, they cannot save you. All the other world's ideologies and philosophies, they offer no hope for you, no salvation. Any preacher, any teacher of the word that doesn't point you to Christ from the word is committing a crime, an eternal crime. Because the only message that we have is that of Christ and Him crucified. I have no other message other than that. And that we always live before the face of this God who sees and who knows, and because of Christ, he cares. So don't only just grow in a mile wide in your understanding of God's word, but grow a, grow a mile wide and, and even deeper in your worship of God and your contemplating his glories and his majesty and also going out wherever you are, wherever God has placed you and telling other people about this great God and what he has done for you on account of the righteousness of Christ alone as we considered when we talked about Bunyan. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful and we're reminded, we're, we're rebuked, we're convicted, we're comforted, we're encouraged. Even today by this psalm, the reminder that you see all, that there's nothing that is beyond the gaze of God, that there is not one square inch over which you do not proclaim mine, 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 
It is all yours. It is all belongs to you. You are glorious in splendor and might and power and glory. You are awesome, as this psalm says, <coughs> in all of your deeds. So, Lord, we are reminded. We are instructed. We are even confronted by the glory of your majesty, which confronts our, the own awfulness of our own sin. And so, Lord, where we've been convicted, I pray, Lord, that we would repent, that we would confess, yes, agree with you, that your verdict is right about us, and that yet, if we are not saved, that we would repent and turn from Christ. If we are belonging to you, Lord, I pray that we would pray uh, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all righteousness. And Lord, I pray today that for those who do not yet know Christ, that they would repent and turn to the only one in King Jesus who can save. The only one who is worthy of our worship and our adoration is not ourselves, but our King. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that it tells us how we are to worship because you are worthy of our worship. It tells us our, the goal of, of our worship to bring worshipers who will together from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people to gather together before the throne of God and worship you forever and ever for your praise and for your glory. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your word, which teaches us in, a, in an age in which worship is so contentious, in which worship is under such assault. You have spoken you have told us clearly what worship is and what our lives are to be a reflection of you and so that we might go out and we might tell others about the glory of Christ, the one whom we worship in spirit and truth. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true and living and active, that it penetrates into the heart of the matter and that it is binding and authoritative over every phase and stage of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.